0: Welcome to Investments Unplugged. Before we get started, this commentary is for general information purposes only, and clients should seek professional advice for their particular situation. Thank you, and listen on.
1: Yeah, In a hurricane, even a turkey can fly.
0: In the fourth quarter of 2018, the S&P 500 index fell approximately 19.8%. As the correction deepened in December, U.S. investors redeemed $117 billion in equity and balanced mutual funds. This was the greatest level of redemptions by investors since October 2008. Investors panicked and in their panic sold and locked in their losses. And despite the recovery in markets, investors through the first quarter of 2019 continued to sell out of equity and balanced funds by an additional $37 billion. Herein lies the investor's dilemma. Let's examine the consequences to the recent investor activity. Assuming an investor sold at the bottom, then by missing the strong rally, if investors were to buy back into equities at the end of the first quarter, they have permanently lost approximately 20% of their capital. On the other hand, if investors, having realized their mistake by selling too hastily, decided that they will wait for another correction before they buy back in, they may be waiting a while. In the meantime, they continue to deepen their loss, in effect through the opportunity cost of missed gains. Further, given investors' irrational behavior to sell in a correction, how likely would they be to buy back in during another correction? What makes investors tick, and more importantly, what drives them to make bad decisions? Listen on. This is Investments Unplugged. Welcome to Investments Unplugged. I'm your host, Philip Peterson, Chief Investment Strategist with Manulife Investment Management. And today I will be hosting the podcast on my own, but I have two very, very special guests, Pauline Kibitzis and Dr. David Lewis, both from BE Works, to discuss behavioral economics. More importantly, what makes investors tick? What drives investors to make mistakes as we've seen in the past, selling at the bottom, buying at the top, building bad habits, how we can get past these. It's going to be quite crucial in terms of, I think, future success to understand mistakes made by investors in the past and how we can change our behaviors and habits to our betterment. My what you need to know, if we're going to start off that way is, listen to what these experts have to say. Well, as mentioned, this episode, we're going to be talking all about behavioral economics, and to do that, joining me is Dr. David Lewis from BE Works, as well as his associate, Pauline Kibitzis, also from BE Works. Now, uh, these two individuals have extensive experience in the industry uh, as well as extensive uh, experience in the researching of behavioral economics. Welcome to Investments Unplugged. Thank Thank you. you. Uh, David, why don't we start with you. So what is, we throw this out, we talk about this quite often, behavioral economics, but what does that mean? So behavioral economics goes by a number of different terms.
1: It can be behavioral economics, behavioral finance, behavioral science. Fundamentally, it's about the scientific study of human behavior how people react to situations and how they make decisions as a result of it.
0: With respect to their money, I would imagine it, that's the economics or finance part of it. So it's it's really getting at the heart of why we make mistakes when we invest. Is that Would that be fair to say?
1: Absolutely. In the context of investing, yes. Why we make mistakes, how we absorb information, it can be making a good investment decision or a good borrowing decision. But behavioral economics in general applies anywhere where people are making decisions. You know, the economics part of it is looking at the incentives with respect to a decision and the behavioral part is looking at the psychology. So certainly finance, that's the application
0: what has your work turned up? I mean, are we good at what we do as investors? And and I don't mean professional investors, but I I would mean the individual trying to manage their own portfolio that might not have a full background in this. What have we learned?
1: We've learned essentially that people make really poor
0: decisions. um,
1: And it's almost as if the world is stacked against them because of the way our brains have developed, the way our cognition operates. We're almost just cursed to make poor decisions. As an example, we typically are myopically risk-averse, which means we have short-term thinking and we avoid risk. And that's almost the opposite of what you need to be when you're making an investment decision.
0: So Pauline, let me ask you, given what's been going on recently between the United States and China and the fear of trade wars, and we had this in the fourth quarter as well, where this prompted investor behavior to start dumping equities and balanced funds. Uh, at record levels, you know, the month of December we saw one hundred and fifteen billion being redeemed in the United States in equity and balanced funds, the greatest amount that we had ever seen, greater than what we saw in two thousand and eight, all perfectly timed at the bottom of the market and all you know driven, I believe by sentiment. So, is that an example of, of investors doing the wrong thing at the wrong time?
2: It's the perfect example of human irrationality. Everyone knows that you should be buying low, selling high. The reality is, is that people aren't doing that. We react based on our emotions. And so it goes back to the fundamental of behavioral economics, which is based off of Amos Tversky and Daniel Kahneman who say, you know, if people were making rational decisions all the time, then we would be considered these Homo Economics. Rational choice agents, considering all of our options on one go and weighing them. That doesn't seem to happen. We're seeing people panic, as you mentioned. And as a result of that, people are using their emotions to base their decisions, even though they know after the fact, when they're in a bit of a colder state and their money isn't on the line, that that probably wasn't the best choice.
0: And maybe one day, you know, it will be be an event that uh, will have a decade-long or decades-long impact on our portfolios. But we've never really seen that. And so what investors do when they panic like this, so take the example of of, uh, December to the end of April, Mm -hmm. if you sold out at the bottom and missed the very, very sharp recovery, you've effectively locked in a 20% loss, never to regain that over time. So how do we get around this? If we know that investors are their own worst enemy, and we see this through the Dalbar study, through all of your work, how do we educate investors to say, here's how you can remove yourself from this process and stop making mistakes?
2: Well the first part is that we need to move away from this education piece. A lot of the time we see education as the be-all and end-all of getting investors to do the right thing. The reality is, as we mentioned, is you can be as educated as you want, but you're still going to make emotionally-based decisions. And while we see in a lot of the research that advisors who are more educated and financially illiterate are able to kind of hone in those emotions a little bit better, they're still not reacting to the market as a completely rational agent should. So we need to start moving away from those educational pieces. To touch on ways that we can do that, an example might be you know, getting someone to plan ahead so having someone focus on pledging what they're going to do well in advance of when the market actually downturns this relies on the fact that people want to remain in line with what with what they've previously stated so if i've made a promise to myself and if i've made a public promise it makes it even stronger that i'm going to act in a certain way at a specific time due to a specific action then i'm more likely to follow through on what i've stated so getting someone to pledge you know. If this stock or equity drops by X basis points, then I'll sell. Could be a potentially effective and easy way to to get investors to act more rationally.
1: And, you know, continuing on that theme, paradoxically, uh, there's a lot of focus on financial literacy training, trying to increase people's objective knowledge of investments. That can have the opposite effect of creating overconfidence. You know, it's the expression a little knowledge is a dangerous thing. And unfortunately, a lot of the industry has tried to focus on financial literacy training, and the, the outcome of that is overconfident investors who are then actually less likely to seek advice, and you can look at the relationship between objective knowledge, what you actually know, subjective knowledge, what you think you know, and overconfidence, and increasing a tiny bit of objective knowledge tends to increase subjective knowledge and overconfidence, and people refuse advice. To come back to your first question, what can we do? Really, we need to encourage people to seek professional financial advice. You need to find a way to remove that overconfidence in a way that doesn't bruise their ego, uh, that leaves them feeling like they're in charge, like they're in control, uh, and that the advisor becomes a partner in helping them tame their own worst instincts. And if people can see the value of that, of sober second thought, of someone to hold their hands when they're panicking the market, that then encourages them to make better decisions. And as you pointed out earlier, these are severely consequential decisions. A 20% loss due to one reaction due to a market downturn has enduring consequences for the rest of their life. And that's where an advisor can step in and say, hold on, the market crashes regularly and the market comes back regularly. And the people who lose are the people who pull out and never get back in. That's an empirical fact. It's been demonstrated in every market crash going back to 1930. However, we all know that rationally, and yet we are still tempted to act irrationally.
0: If I want to start working out, if I want to start going to the gym, you know, I can try that, but it's a lot easier. I'm going to be more committed to it if I have a personal trainer that I'm going to see, that's going to drive me, that's going to build the good habits, that's going to be there to encourage me to make sure I don't screw up and I do things properly and don't hurt myself.
1: You're talking about a principle in behavioral economics there as well. We all have limited willpower. Um, it, there's not infinite willpower. And so come the end of the day, when you're thinking, should I go to the gym, willpower alone is not enough. The, f- the fear of losing the money you paid for the trainer, th- avoiding that loss is more of a motivation than, the w- than having willpower to behave more, more healthily. That's a
0: beautiful example of behavioral economics. We all need personal financial trainers, I guess, to do the heavy lifting for us, to guide us in the right way and build those good habits. Now on that... Um, does that work is that the the one solution like when investors are sitting there and they're having someone tell them saying here's how, what we're going to do here's what we're what we need to do we need uh, so that you meet your goals and don't lock in your losses how does the investor respond to that So one possible
1: response is a, is a loss of personal agency people don't like to feel like they've lost control so it's important that that advice be positioned in a way that the client feels that they're the ones making a decision that the advisor is collaborating with them they don't want to feel like the advisor has removed control and they're now you know powerless having a feeling of control is one of the reasons why people want to sell during a market volatility period they want to re-establish control they feel like the entire world has just gone crazy and there's no control over it and they want to reestablish control by pulling the money out sticking it under the mattress and then they feel like they're in control again so how does the Ideal interaction with an advisor work, the advisor is seen as an agent acting in their best interest, helping improve their decision-making, giving them ideas. If you can establish that sort of a relationship, it's much more productive.
0: Pauline, so if we're working with an advisor now... Does an advisor get caught up in their emotions or perhaps in the emotions of their client that sometimes leads to the wrong decision?
2: Advisors do have a better metacognition, so they're able to hone in some of those emotions more frequently when it comes to volatile markets. But the reality is is that we're all humans. We all react to certain certain volatile times. And when our money is on the line or when the money of a friend, let's say, who happens to also be an investor is on the line, we tend to... Blur the line between you know our metacognition and our ability to see what's best in, in the needs of our client and what we want to do for our friend.
0: Different analogy. I'm a doctor. I'm prescribing the medicine, but I know you're not going to take the medicine, so I'm going to try and at least get you part of the way there, right. which is odd because it's either you take the medicine or you die. I mean, you know, in some cases, but in in this case, you know, when we're working with an advisor, you might not meet your goals, you might have a shortfall, you might you might um, not have everything that you planned for, but I'm going to get you as close as I can to at least make sure that you're staying within these boundaries because the consequence is you're just gonna leave and make a whole bunch of mistakes on your own. Is that fair to, or do you, have you seen that in the research? You know, as
1: you were you were talking about that, I was thinking about the ability of the advisor due to having experience, having seen this occur many, many, many times, they're more likely to be able to, you know, on self-reflection, avoid some of those emotional reactions. Um, one based on experience, but also the other based on just having a knowledge. As an example, the more advisors are trained on behavioral economics, the more they are able to actually recognize self-defeating behaviors.
0: Yeah, so, how do you train an advisor to know this, to recognize this, and, and apply it? So, at Manulife,
1: we've been um, going on various, you know, national sales, um, various trips with people who are advisors and who advise clients, and we actually give a, a an hour-long presentation on the four most significant heuristics that can negatively affect decision-making, and we talk about ways that you can actually short-circuit those heuristics so that they no longer cause bad decision-making. Um, the training, it doesn't require extensive training in behavioral science to understand it. Um, a lot of these make so much sense when you see them for the first time uh, that you wonder why you never thought of that before. And some of the interventions are so simple but so effective uh, that they can be very useful. As an example, one of the things we talk about is um, mental accounting. And everyone does this. We tend to compartmentalize money. It's artificial. Money is fungible. It flows between accounts. There's no such thing as your vacation account and your car account. But people like to compartmentalize money that way. They like to have two different savings accounts, which doesn't really make sense. It's also why, for example, people will carry a balance on their credit card and and keep money in a savings account. They do that because they want to feel like they're savings, right? The the economist would tell them, why are you paying interest on your credit card and earning far less interest on the savings account? Why don't you just pay down your credit card? And the consumer will say, but then uh, I'll feel like I'm not saving anymore. And you could argue that it's irrational, but if it makes them feel better, is it irrational? Not really. In an investment Perspective. You can do the same thing. You can tell clients, look, you do have a long-term component of your portfolio and a short-term component. So let's start thinking about that explicitly. Don't look at your long-term portion. Don't check that account. Don't look and see what's going on. Have two different accounts. Here's your short-term money. You can get excited about that one. We'll talk about that. And believe it or not, when people get into that mind frame, it then does allow them to just do exactly what they should be doing from a normatively optimal standpoint investment decision making. You should put it away, if it's 25 years before you're gonna need it, put it away for 25 years and let it grow. Explicitly having them make that mental accounting separation in their mind allows them to do that and so that's an example of something that can be incredibly obvious and incredibly easy once it's described you don't have to have a PhD in psychology to understand that people like to have mental accounts and you can use that to help them make better decisions
0: that was probably the hardest thing when um, my wife and I years ago uh, we shifted everything into this one account that lumped in our mortgage lumped in everything like it lumped in everything and we effectively had no money you know, When we would go to the bank and, and get money out, it showed us a negative balance. And I remember my wife, the first time she saw that, she was just like, oh, my God, what, what is this? We owe that? I say, well, yeah, in theory, if this is the mortgage. This is everything. And you just have to get past the fact that we have no money. We have access to money, but we are borrowing it from the bank. But ultimately, this was it all worked out great. But it was just really getting hard or it was hard to get over the fact that, yeah, we had no money once you let that go, it was fine. Um, did we do ourselves a disservice by giving everyone, clients, advisors, anyone that wanted it, online access to their accounts every single day?
1: Absolutely. Research shows that uh, the frequency of account checking is negatively correlated with investment returns, meaning that the more frequently they check their account, the lower their investment returns. And yes, having that regular online access definitely has increased you know, myopia, Uh, risk aversion, uh, it increases the frequency of trading and account repositioning, increases the transaction fees on the account, tends to ensure that people are trading at inappropriate times. Um, You know, I have friends call me and say, oh, the market just crashed, what should I be doing? And I say, well, what happened on Black Monday? Everything went on sale and you bought a big screen TV you didn't need. So all the stocks just went on sale today, why don't you go shopping? Um, And so those sorts of things are so counterintuitive to the way we naturally think. And, you know, your example with the single account, from an economic standpoint, from a, you know, the the accountant or the economist would say, that's brilliant. But the non-rational consumer says, where did my money go? Mm -hmm. And, you know, the economist or or the investment advisor would say, don't trade too frequently. You're going to incur extra costs and you're going to be trading in in opportune times. But we, the non-rational investors, just can't help it. And by giving them that opportunity, we've almost ensured that they'll behave, you know, in a normatively suboptimal manner.
0: Well, it's like my colleague Makan, always says investing is like soap. The more you touch it, the smaller it gets. Um, and and if you if you refer to the the Dalbar study, they actually showed. So this is the one that shows. I'm sure you've you've seen it. The 30 year uh, returns for the S and P 500 and the 30 year return for Uh, the do-it-yourself equity investor. And they actually went so far as to say, this is not as a result of bad advice from an advisor. This is the investor behavior that has driven this. Um, So given the current environment, what do you think investors are thinking now? Do you think that they're starting to, to get nervous that they are hearing more about this tariff spat, this, I don't want to say a trade war, but certainly trade tension between the US and China? And they're thinking, I got to sell my stocks even though they have no idea what the consequence may or may not be yeah
1: exactly anytime you increase fear you know we have a natural adaptive reaction and uh, you know one model of the way the brain works is system one and system two where system two is very thoughtful deliberative careful system one is very impetuous uh, makes very quick decisions in the absence of any information one of the triggers of shifting from that thoughtful deliberative mode of thinking to the you know reactive mode of thinking is is uh, panic and anxiety. You know, from an evolutionary standpoint, uh, we're walking through the jungle a million and a half years ago and a giant lion jumps out to eat us. If you sat down and said, well, which tree should I climb, you were dead. If you just jumped, you lived. Uh, unfortunately, our brains didn't evolve a good way to determine which type of thinking to use. And one of the triggers there is panic. So when you see panic in the market, you're almost programming people to throw away these long, carefully thought out plans and, and react just instantaneously and so you know it can be anxiety over everything to your point trade may or may not have a negative impact on the Canadian economy but they want to trade right trade wars could be bad could be good figure out which side of it there's probably an investment opportunity in you know uh, an environment of ongoing trade tensions there are going to be companies that are going to do well let your advisor figure that out
0: I'm just going to try and summarize a couple of the rules that we've come across and let me know any other rules that that are there first one Stop looking at your balance and your statements every single day, week, maybe even monthly.
1: Yeah, i say look at it roughly as often as you go to the dentist.
0: Every six to nine months, I would say then, which is kind of interesting because come December, I remember when I would be doing client events uh, in early January, just before the statements were coming out, and my advice was don't open it because what we're seeing right now, we're already seeing a recovery in the market, and that's just going to depress you. Don't open it at all. Just just throw it out. Um, I did that with mine. Good advice. And and I think, okay, so that's one. Uh, second one would be get an advisor, right? Get a, that personal financial trainer, that advisor that will help you build good habits. What would be the third one?
1: Um, one of the challenges with advisors, so uh, depressingly, depending on which segment, roughly 25% of the population has a professional financial advisor, which, you know, and I've seen many measures in many countries, U.S., Canada, it is a dis- – you know, depressingly low proportion. But even worse, a smaller number of those people actually listen to the advisor. So part of it is get an advisor, but the other part of it is actually listen to the advisor and follow the advice. Because many times people view the advisor as being another source of information to be included along with everything else. So don't have, you know, don't get your advisor and then pick up the headlines and read the financial headlines and then make a decision. It should be a collaborative enterprise between you and the advisor take advantage of the advisor's expertise. So yes, get an advisor, but more importantly, listen to your advisor.
0: Now I work with an advisor, I work with an advisory team. Do you both work with advisors?
1: I I'm do. expecting it to be the answer <laughs> to be yes.
0: If it's not, yes, then we're gonna have to cancel this podcast, but- No, I, I absolutely
1: do because you know I recognize I'm also subject to you know the, the heuristics and biases that can short circuit decision making. And so I need
0: someone to tell me occasionally that I'm making a bad decision. And Pauline, you as well? I saw you nodding over there. Just want to just want to confirm.
2: I, I know I can be very irrational, especially in those hot state moments where you know you are you're just seeing your money plummeting, right? And so it's hard it's hard for you to just take a step back and say, should I actually be selling right now? And so you need someone who's kind of external, who's there to say, hold your hand a little bit in a way, and let you know that you're making the right decision, and that they are the the more knowledgeable person in this relationship, and so you you feel that trustworthiness to let them go ahead and, and make that decision for you. So
1: I'm going to comment that I, I actually published some research recently um, on the reasons why people do or don't seek advice and looked at many different factors, and overconfidence was really the most important factor. It, was, it overpowered all the other factors, and so you think about getting advice. Um, we have a tendency, so as an example, I worked in the financial services industry for almost 30 years. Uh, you know I'm a chartered financial analyst, which you know qualifies me to advise clients to run money market funds. But Tiger Woods has a coach. Wayne Gretzky had a coach, right? All of these people who are really, really good and I'm sure Tiger Woods's golf coach can't golf as well as Tiger can. But Tiger recognizes you need someone to help you get better. And uh, I think one of the biggest things we can do is tell people, don't be ashamed to go and talk to an advisor. You know, you may think that you're an expert in investments, but having someone to bounce ideas off is incredibly useful.
0: Mm -hmm. I would agree. and In in my situation, people are often, you know, when I mention it, they say, why do you have an advisor? I mean, all you do is investing. So, yes, In, in my view, that's only a small part of it. The bigger part, you know, the, the 90% part that the advisor brings to the table in terms of the value that I see is how to structure it. I'm not a tax expert, I admit I don't know anything about taxes, so how do I minimize the taxes that I pay on the investments? What I need to do elsewhere, which is insurance, right? how do I protect what I have for the next generation and so on, um, and it is building those habits of, all right, it's time to make the contribution here. It's time to make the contribution there. It's time to do this. It's time to manage all that. So they're the, you know, I've heard people refer to them as, as a personal CFO, you know, any different ways. But from my perspective, the investing, like the asset allocation, I find that's the easiest thing. I just say, here's the model portfolio. Just do that. It's how they implement that, how they executed that, that I can't be bothered with. I know I don't know. And I know they're going to save me a lot over the long term because of what they know that I don't. Know.
1: Well, I think your earlier um, analog of uh, having the personal trainer is a great one, right? We're all busy. We procrastinate. There's lots going on. Having someone there reminding us regularly, you know, you got to do this. The deadline for this is coming up. you got to file this now. Get this done. You know, it's, it's a personal trainer for your retirement.
0: To your point, in terms of overconfidence, I think some of the most dangerous people out there, investors certainly, are those that think they know more than they actually do. Right. And those are the ones that are going to make mistakes because they know the markets. They know this. They know that. And they don't. They may have been lucky and made money beforehand, but luck doesn't translate into knowledge. No, a broken watch is right twice a day. Exactly. Exactly. So um, on that, uh, in your own history, either of you, have, have there been things that you did early on in your career that you look back and go, ah, now I know why I did that and now I know why I shouldn't have? I was working on
1: Wall Street in 2008 during that whole market volatility and people were going really, really crazy is probably the best way. They were you know, getting into capitulation, basically dump my entire portfolio, I don't care about the consequences. And so it's hard during an environment like that to not, um, you know, when the entire world is moving in one direction, the right thing for me to do at that point in 2008, 2009, would have been to invest heavily, buy up everything that was oversold, right? Borrow money and do it. Do it on margin. I mean, as crazy as it sounds, that's, in retrospect, that's what I should have done. However, all of the panic around me made me second guess my own convictions and say, you know, I know that the market's incredibly cheap right now. I know it's oversold. I know there's no valid economic reason for all of these banks to be down as much as they are. So I should just be buying. And if I had, you know, it was a over 26% return the next year. That would have been fabulous, but, you know, I fell prey to the panic as well.
0: And since then, since the, the, uh, since the bottom of the market, the S&P 500 has come up from March 9, 2009, approximately 300%. So That's a massive gain. You just
1: made me feel even worse about
0: what I did back in <laughs> Thanks. Thanks a lot. Well, it, it, I mean, this is, you know, it really does get quite interesting. You know, it, it seems that we've done um, simulations, uh, like Monte Carlo simulations, in terms of the optimal portfolio over the long term and so on. And it seems during the accumulation phase, you know, really, the optimal portfolio is, it, it depends on your time frame, uh, but the longer the time frame, you know, the the more you should be in equities and, and upwards of 100% equities and just stick with it. You'll always, I remember a colleague of mine that I worked with years ago put up this chart, and it was, um, we were going through the uh, the early corrections of 2000 through 2003, or the bear market of so 2000 bubble. through 2003, And he put up the chart and he said, can you spot 1987? And at that time, because the S&P 500 had gained significantly through the 90s, that 87, that correction of 87 looked minuscule. And he said, in time, we're going to look back on 2000 and it's going to be equally as small. But it, it takes time to recognize that. It might feel like a big drop today, but if you stick with it over time, you'll be rewarded for that.
1: You know, again, to your prior point, we can all sit around this table and and know this, but I'll be the first one to admit, I still find when you're actually entering that trade and making that trade and putting your money on the line, it's hard not to pay attention to everyone around you panicking and saying, sell, sell, sell. Mm -hmm. But I know the right thing to do. And you know, that's where I think having this metacognitive awareness, understanding my own heuristics and biases lets me overcome those sort of
0: impulses towards
1: behaving rationally.
0: Pauline, do you have anything in your history where that where you sat there and said, given everything that I know now, I shouldn't have done that?
2: Oh, absolutely. And I think that, you know, you touched on a really great point about the digital aspect of investing and how it's actually made people react more and, and be panic more often. And I certainly saw that in my own behavior. Uh, I tried to time the market. I don't think anyone can time the market, but when we're investing, we all think we're, we're great market timers. And it all gets back to, I saw my investments in a very granular manner, where I was just seeing this, this market downturn, when in real, with, with the trade wars going on, and, well, trade wars, I shouldn't frame it as that way. But, and the reality was that if I had looked at it on a larger scale, if I had actually uh, been shown my investments over the larger period of time in which I was investing, I probably wouldn't have made such an irrational choice. And I think when it comes to advisors kind of helping clients along the way, You can do things to get them to realize that maybe they're not the market timer they thought they were. Uh, David framed this really well for me, actually, where he asked me, uh, you know, I, I really like music. And so he said, name the top 10 musicians. And, you know, I named my, Of all time? Of, or this, time, of a, all time. Of all time. My genre. favorite. <laughs> this is a great card game. We play this
0: card game all the time. Top 10 albums of all time.
2: Yeah. And so, you know, you name those top 10 albums of all time so quickly. And then he goes, okay, well, name the top 10 market timers of all time. And then you start to reflect a little bit. And he's like, okay, you know what? That's pretty hard. Why don't you name the top five? And you still can't really put, put your finger on it. Okay, just name one, Colleen. And still.
0: Philip Peterson did Philip Peterson. That? <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> so that sort of framing ha- has been really helpful for me. But certainly, you know, without that, I-, I made my own personal mistakes.
0: Yeah, it's very difficult. It comes back to what you had said earlier, with, which is, and I think it's a great thing to do for advisors, is to set out rules of engagement. Yes. That it's almost like every if-then statement. Right. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to commit to an investment plan that's going to see you invest X amount with this kind of frequency. If the market's drop by this, we're going to do this. If the market's gain by this, we're going to do this, whatever it might be. I agree. Timing the market is unbelievably difficult. Valuation, we've seen valuation isn't a good indicator of timing the market. Uh, It is over a longer period of time, but still, that doesn't mean that you can't make money. It's just your returns might be less. And a bull market is still a bull market if the market's only up 1%. The other one I think is key that we try to follow is when you see, and David, you mentioned it um, with your experience through 2008, when the markets are down a certain point, and in the fourth quarter when we broke 10%, historically the rule is this, and this is one of the things that perhaps uh, investors should keep in mind. if you're down 10% and we're not in a recession, now that's the trickier thing trying to identify whether we're in a recessionary environment or not, but we, you know, if you look at a, a list, it, it does seem a little bit more obvious, but if we're not in a recession, then you have a disproportionate opportunity to make a significant amount over the coming 12 months. So if you're down 10%, your average one-year forward return uh, going back over the last 30 years is 20%. That's your average, and we've seen that, right? You're down 10% in the fourth quarter, Off the lows, the markets are up about 25. Um, So the rule that we have is if you're down 10 and there's no recession, you buy. That's just all you do. You know, you just don't think about it and you buy. And history has has shown that that's often the right thing to do. But if you didn't have that rule in the first place, then you start to second guess yourself. Well, should we buy? Well, it could get worse. Well, maybe this, maybe that. And maybe I should be selling everything because we could be down another 10%. But the better thing to do would have been buy.
1: Yeah, and, and those sorts of rules are the things that, you know, professional financial advisors, they focus on day in, day out. And so they're, they're better at applying them. There's in, in psychology research, there's something called social conformity research where you get a collection of people, a group of people in a room, all holding an opinion which actually is contrary to the truth. So one of the most famous examples were the Ash experiments where he would have five or six people sitting around a table. They'd bring in um, the research subject, unbeknownst to them, everyone else around the table was a Confederate. Then they'd put a series of lines up on the wall and say, okay, which one of these lines is longer or which one of these lines is shorter? And it would proceed normally for a while, but then the other five people would start making outrageously wrong answers. You know, they'd say that the line that was obviously shorter was longer. And you could see these people very uncomfortable, but in the end, they would conform to what the rest of the group was. And part of the measure was just how ridiculously wrong do the other five people have to be before you don't agree with them? And the challenge with the rule, like the 10%, you know that going into it. But then when it happens and everyone else is screaming for the exits, running out the exits, do you have the perseverance to actually say, no, I made this decision? So your point of making a commitment, pre-committing and saying, this is what I'm going to do. But then having an advisor help you and remind you and say, don't worry about the rest of those people running around screaming. This is a buying opportunity. Everything just went on sale.
2: It's also important during that time to positively reinforce the investor, right? Because- it's one thing to have them sign this pledge ahead of time or pre-commit to not selling. Then there's this market downturn. Then there's about a bit of a herding effect or social proof in psychology where folks are selling. You want to follow the herd. Your advisor is telling you no. You promised you weren't, so you stick with what you had promised originally. But you feel negatively about it because you see your money going down. And so it's important to counteract that with someone positively encouraging you and reinforcing those decisions, whether that's through just a positive positively reinforcing message or whether it's through another means of of positive reinforcement but you want to counteract that negative reinforcement
0: how do you do that i mean one of the things that we often say is you know it's the right decision if it makes you sick to your stomach Mm -hmm. that's hard because everything within me is saying ah the market's down you know 10 15 percent we should be buying but i just feel so bad about it that it must be the right thing but it's so hard to get past that yeah is there a way that we we just have to be dispassionate
1: about it So I had a good friend who was a floor trader in New York, and uh, he told me that the deals he made the most money on were the ones where he was physically shaking when he was actually handing in the ticket. And he looked back and said, you know, those are the ones I actually did the best on. And so his experience of doing that over many, many years made him less subject to the emotional biases. And so what we really need to do is talk to someone like that who can hold your hand when you're shaking and say no this is the right decision you're making the right decision
0: and then is it the opposite when so back to the overconfidence when i feel that oh this is exactly what i should be doing i feel so good about buying this because things are only going to go up that that's we should step back and go hold on that's almost too easy of a decision to buy this because everything seems that it's it's going to work my way and i feel too good about this
1: so i mean you've you've given lots
0: of great facts
1: and I think that's really the way to do it, because overconfidence, by definition, is when you know less than you think you do, right? So that's overconfidence. If you actually have a lot of good information in fact and you've studied it, and yes, it's going to make you nervous, but it's being done on a factual basis rather than an emotional basis. Um, you know, to your point, pulling at a stat like saying, if it's down 10 percent and we're not in a recession, the upside's 20. Right? That's factual, that's not overconfident. Overconfident is someone just saying, what could go wrong, I'm plowing into this stock because you know my buddy says it can only go up. That's overconfidence.
0: And there's been a lot of that. I remember uh, back in the day during the uh, like 98, 99, very early 2000 run in tech, where everyone was telling you what tech company that they owned and how much they had made, 140%, 200%, whatever it was, it was just so easy. And there was an individual that um, uh, I worked with who knew someone that all they did was watch the, the business news. And when certain phrases would come up about a certain company, they would go, ooh, and they would buy only on that. Because it worked, it was easy until it didn't.
1: Yeah, in a hurricane, even a turkey can fly.
0: That's even better. I like that one even better. OK, so how do we get our, our clients then to turn off in the 24-hour news cycle and the tweets and everything that comes out and everything that is thrown at us How do we turn that off ourselves?
1: I think one way is making them aware of the deleterious effects of being overloaded with too much negative news. If people can become aware, if you can, you know, um, there's a great book by one of the people, uh, one of the founders of BE Works, Dan Ariely, wrote a book called Predictably Irrational. And it's a really easy book to read to actually give you tons of examples of um, irrational decision making. If you can be aware of that and, you know, become more self-reflective and say, well, wait a minute. You know, and before I really started studying consumer behavior and behavioral science, I really didn't understand the way I think and the way other people think and the way our brains work. But once you know a little bit about it, you're more capable of sitting down and saying, now hold on. Is this a good decision? Is this based on fact or is this based on emotion? Am I being rational? Am I being irrational? So I think one of the ways to do it is to just make people more aware of the fact that we, you know, classical economics assumes we're rational utility maximizing consumers. The reality is we're not. Mm-hmm. And if more people are aware of that, they'll be more willing to actually be reflective and say, what's driving this decision?
0: You tend to see it more in, in with uh, money than anything else, that we are entirely irrational. And it comes right back to, I don't know if you've um, ever read the book, um, Risk Profits and Uncertainty by Frank Knight back in the 20s, Knightian Uncertainty, which is, you know, you have to assume that when it comes to money that everyone is irrational because we're going to do the wrong things. We'll go out when it's raining with an umbrella in a thunderstorm because, you know, the odds of us getting struck by lightning are very, very low. Yet we'll panic at the markets because we don't know anything, yet markets are up 70% of the time. So, if you're in there for the long term, you have a good chance of making money, but we'll do things that, that completely go against common sense. If you, I'm, I'm going to just kind of ask you to summarize it with two things one piece of advice for clients, one piece of advice for advisors working with clients. So, what would be the, the, the one key piece of advice that you would offer to clients first? I think I might know what it is based on the conversation we've had, but what would you say that would be? Have an advisor, to your point, look at your entire
1: financial life. Look at your investments, look at your borrowing, look at your insurance, all of those things to be managed. Get an advisor and listen to them. And I think the advice I'd make for advisors is, so I spent many, many years marketing for financial services. And we thought that giving one, three, five-year returns of standard deviation and betas and all these colorful charts and performance history was the way to convince consumers. I think advisors have to realize that For the most part, consumers are overloaded, they're overwhelmed, they're fearful. Don't assume that you can convince them to seek advice and follow advice by presenting rational facts. That doesn't work. They're not thinking rationally. And so I'll tell you, I did marketing wrong for 30 years because we would give facts and assume the facts were sufficient to convince these people, oh, that is a great investment strategy. I am gonna talk to you. The advice I'd give to advisors is start to get in touch with behavioral science. Start to understand how people make decisions, learn about it, and you'll be able to help your clients far more through that than, you know, taking the latest course in asset allocation strategies because you won't have a chance to use that knowledge if you don't
0: have consumers coming to you willing to work with you. David, Pauline, I want to thank you very much. Before we let you go, though, before I let you go, uh, we do one thing at the end of our podcast always, which is called the lightning round. Um, and David, I think you might have seen it, it with some of the presentations that we've done just recently, where I'm going to ask you just random questions on anything and, and just look for your answer, because this is a people business, right? What we want to do, it's not just investing in the markets, but we also invest with people. And when it comes to uh, the knowledge that you offer, I'm also investing in you. So this is just a way for us to get to know you a little bit better. So this we'll just go through this and see where we end up. Pauline, first to you, if you have a dollar to put in the market today, where does it go, into equities or into bonds?
2: Equities.
0: Equities. Uh, David, same question. Equities. I, You know, I, it was, that was an easy question, I think, uh, <laughs> given what we've just gone through. Uh, I just followed the flow. Pauline said equity, so I just said <laughs> equity. Oh, perfect. Excellent. Pauline, last book you read.
2: Oh, my goodness. What was the last book I read? I, I flipped through like eight books at a time. Um, block. It was a blockchain book.
0: A blockchain book? Is it worth investing? No. No? Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> David, last movie you saw.
1: I've been watching Game of Thrones so long that I can't even remember the movie. No, actually, I watched a very interesting documentary uh, on World War One, and what I found interesting about it was that it focused on the human side. So this wasn't about battles and explosions. It was about why did these people sign up and what did they expect they were going to do. And I found it interesting because for the most part they were – thinking this was a three-month jaunt, and it was fun, and it was patriotic, and then they were up to their necks in mud, and the outcome was entirely different. Was that the one that they colorized? Yes.
0: Yeah, I saw. I haven't seen that one yet, but I've seen uh, some of the the adverts for it, and it looks very, very interesting, so one you'd recommend. Definitely. It focuses on the human side. Excellent. Pauline, when you fly, do you read or watch movies?
2: I watch movies.
0: Yeah, you're like me. I watch movies too. Last movie you saw on on a flight.
2: Oh, goodness. Um, That one with Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper... That's really sad. I was, yes. like, crying on this flight. It was Star really is emotional. It was that Star born. Born, born. That was yeah. it.
0: Yes, Star Born. Don't
2: recommend on a flight. No? It's a, it's a deep one.
0: It's funny. I didn't recommend it at all. I came out of that. Was like, <laughs> oh, it, wasn't, it wasn't nearly as... The Barbara as...
2: Streisand one was better. That I version.
0: would agree. I would agree. David, Raptors, do they make it all the way through? We'll find we'll out. Say. We'll find out. We'll find out. Well, that's that's not very confident, but that's okay. Not a basketball fan, or just...
1: No, I am a basketball fan. I love watching sports, um, but I'm kind of one of these curious people that I know that if I start watching it, it'll it'll become so interesting. That's all I want to do. So I literally avoid turning it on, and I wait to hear
0: what happened the next day. I, I can't put myself through the emotional roller coaster. Just like investing, we want to be dispassionate about our sports as we are with about our investments. I like that. I like that a lot. Uh, so then, just one last question to each of you. Just curious. Um, last thing, just. Random, But the, the odds of a recession, would it be, or the over-under on a recession? Just curious. It, would it be uh, 12 months, under 12 months, or over 12 months? David, let's start with you.
1: I'm thinking over 12. I'm thinking 12 to 19. Um, but, you know, it, it is interesting. And I listened to you speaking the other day. Um, and, you know, it is interesting. The nature of our economy has changed so much just in the sectors, um, a lot of our models on recessions are based on an economy that has been changing so quickly that it may be difficult to even forecast.
0: And Pauline, last question to you. If David is right in his 12 to 19 months, does that change anything with your investment strategy? No. Good answer. That was the trick question there. Pauline, David, thank you so much for joining us on Investments Unplugged. All
1: right. Thank you.
0: So there you have it. I think it was quite interesting hearing uh, some of the key things in terms of the advice that David and Pauline would have for clients and have for advisors. And some of these gems, the little gems of advice would be, one, get an advisor, if only to help build good habits and to keep us out of trouble. Two, Try not to focus too much on our balance on a daily basis. In fact, what David said was, you know, we should look at it as often as we go to the dentist. And I I would agree with that. And that eliminates that second guessing or regret of being in the market or being out of the market. You know, it just continues to uh, stick to the plan. Um, And that would be the third one. As Pauline said, working with an advisor to set out rules of engagement. And what are the rules that we're going to follow with respect to the markets? What are we going to do uh, if the markets do drop? What is the plan over the long term? What are we trying to achieve? And if we continue to remind ourselves of these rules of engagement, it will help to avoid making mistakes that will be costly. And as we've seen with some investors, uh, most recently, selling at the bottom, locking in our losses missing the opportunities to recover. And these, these, again, are losses that we will never get back. And so working with an advisor, setting out the rules, and, and trying not to focus on the day-to-day movements of the markets, but focus more on the long-term plan is the way to go. So with that, this has been Philip Peterson of Investments Unplugged. Copyright Manulife commentary is for general information purposes only and shouldn't be relied on for specific financial, legal, or other advice, and does not constitute an offer or an invitation by or on behalf of Manulife Investments to any person to buy or sell any security. Opinions expressed are those of Manulife and or the sub-advisor of Manulife Investments and are subject to change based on market and other conditions. Manulife isn't responsible for any losses arising from any use of this information. Manulife Mutual Funds are managed by Manulife Investments, a division of Manulife Asset Management Limited. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses all may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the fun facts and perspectives before investing. Mutual funds are not guaranteed, their values change frequently, and past performance may not be repeated. This information does not replace or supersede Know Your Client Suitability, Needs Analysis, or any other regulatory requirements.